there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Well, welcome everyone to the Aging Fearlessly program today. There's so much concern about the environment. It's on people's mind all the time. They worry about climate change and making our world sustainable. So my guest today is an expert in the field and hence the reason I invited her to join me on the program. So welcome Helen, Helen Millicer. Thank you very much, Karen. Pleased to be here. It's really exciting to have you here because here on the news, so many people talking about the concerns of our environment, how we survive. Is there climate change? Isn't there climate change? I want you to shed some light on this for us today. But firstly, tell us a bit about what you do. Well, I have a wonderful career as an advisor and consultant. Now, I have been working for the Australian Packaging Covenant Organisation and I also do various presentations, normally public presentations for conferences and uh, special interest groups. I've been working in sustainability for probably close on 20 years now and Mm. enjoying it thoroughly. The reason I enjoy it is because it is continually evolving and it's a very positive, proactive space. I'd rather be in the middle of it than trying to or rant and rave from the sidelines like my brother or others who um, yell at the television. So I am in a very fortunate position in my life to be working in something that gives me incredible satisfaction to know that I'm helping make a difference. Uh, I came to working in sustainability fairly late in my life. Well, no, I should say I worked for 10 years working in the arts, organising concerts, festivals, uh, running training for arts people, whether they were writers or whomever, to help them get ahead, to run a business, to make a living. And I made the decision to move into sustainability because I felt that it was a, a place where I could make a bigger difference to the future directions of Australia. The two things are miles apart. You would think so, but, uh, and certainly I was trained to be a curator and organise exhibitions and so forth. That was my job. But I should say that I've always had more than one string to my bow. That even when I was working in that area, I was doing radio programs, I was editing, I was writing. And it was through that that I got into, through PR and communications, that I made a move into sustainability. So while I have no qualifications as a chemical engineer or a hydrologist or a um, a chemical scientist, I nevertheless translate complex information into simple, plain English for people. And I think if you're a reasonable communicator, you can move across into a wide range of areas. So I made the transition fairly seamlessly back in over a couple of years 
and have never looked back whatsoever, Karen? It's amazing because I think a lot of people wear more than one hat and I think it keeps life interesting, definitely. Absolutely. I would be bored stiff. And so in terms of answering your question, what do I do, I provide advice and encouragement. I uh, encourage businesses and governments to adopt systemic change. So I had um, a wonderful job just last year where I worked on contract with the Victorian government and amongst many things, um, I uh, helped them introduce what I think is the most effective uh, ban and phase-out of lightweight plastic bags in the country. And I'm now working for the Australian Packaging Covenant Organisation, helping them and Australia move to a more uh, sustainable packaging overall, considering the carbon footprint, uh, what resources we use, and really trying to make a fundamental shift to our whole packaging future. Well, packaging, and I heard, I'm not going to name a name, but a a rather large business is about to go into more cardboard-style packaging, and it's one of those businesses, it's grocery, but you go in and you see so much in plastic. And even if you pick up your fruit and veg, you know, and put it into a bag, I, I don't usually use the plastic bag to put lemons in. I just throw them into the trolley. But then you go and buy something else and it's wrapped in plastic and it drives me nuts. And I think, how do you avoid this other than boycotting and not buying it? Well, that's right, because not everything can be sold loose. So when you can, do avoid the packaging entirely, whatever it is made of. Um, And the brand owner will have made a decision on the basis of what's called a life cycle assessment, what sort of packaging is best. And sometimes it is appropriate to include packaging because it needs to be um, transported and arrive at the customer appropriately. It's the best way to actually keep it for an extended period of time, such as some meats, for example. So sometimes it's essential to have that. But, yes, we do need to make a fundamental shift to use and be far more sustainable using less um, more wisely, recycling, reusing it far more. And that applies to furniture, it applies to our cars, it applies to the clothes, mm-hmm. what we wear, uh, it applies in a whole wide range of contexts, Karen, and that's where we have to get to because, frankly, our lives are not sustainable at the moment. We are incredibly high-consuming society with an enormous amount of material going to landfill that has taken years if not millennia to be produced and we have disposed of it so quickly without a second thought and that is we're only on one planet there is no other planet to go to while they might have NASA missions and so forth occasionally to Mars that's not going to happen for an incredibly long time and so there's no get out of jail clause for us in terms of we lead lead our lives and if you went round Helen and did an audit of, you know, walking around the shops, they're not just supermarkets or, you know, if you go to restaurants and order takeaway, in a lot of cases the takeaway comes in plastic containers. 
and sometimes it's even wrapped in plastic over the plastic containers. We all know that it's not the way to go, but then how do you change it? If you want to order a takeaway and that's how it comes, do you not go and order the takeaway? It sort of plays on my mind. Um, perhaps takeaways, um, they're the most obvious example, but then again, that's just packaging. But then if we take, for example, people in their mobile phone, mm. I mean, we are moving to a more digital world. So are reducing the amount of paper we consume we are by doing online communications like this now we mm-hmm. don't have to travel into a studio yep. there's less travel in a car there's less carbon emissions as a result of that uh, when i used to do radio shows we used to do reel-to-reel tape recording yeah. so for every single interview it used to be uh you know a plastic reel-to-reel tape that i would splice and then i'd have to store somewhere so we are moving to a lighter economy in that respect Mm. We have a marketing and, and, you know, whether it's um, government stimulus packages, it's all around based around consumption, not around mm. quality. And mm. so we have to do a fundamental reset. So, yes, you can give the example of takeaway when, of course, it would be far better if we had durable take-back containers. So you went to the shop and they gave you something or you took it and you got it back in the container that you yeah. take. So there are closed loop packaging alternatives that we can do um but then again it's everything you know like mobile phone um yeah uh, this mobile phone is now three years old i'm still perfectly happy with it it doesn't need a change i'm sitting looking at you on a laptop that's three years old it doesn't need a change change the battery and give an upgrade we need to move to reuse and repair away from high consumption of disposable items and that's with our clothing so we get our zip repaired if we need to repair our zip. We go and get our glasses repaired. We get new lenses in the same glasses if we can. Mm. The sorts of initiatives that we must move to. And again, how we demolish buildings, how we rebuild buildings. There's so much we need to do. So, so many of our financial incentives are based around maximum consumption over longevity and repair. Yeah. You know, you talk about repairing shoes. I'm a big repairer of shoes. Like I had a pair of shoes once, and this is this is a sad tale, but many years ago I had a really close friend who lived in Canada and she had an MS and she gave me a pair of her shoes because we got wet one day. I was wheeling her in her wheelchair and she said, oh, look, you, you need to take my shoes and wear them. I can't wear them anymore. And, you know, those shoes... I recycled for 10 years and my bootmaker used to say, Karen, I can't fix them again. <laughs> and I go, yeah, you can because I'm walking for Rachel, you know, and it, it does prove you can repair. And those shoes were so comfortable. Yes. But, you know, for the 20 or $30 it costs to repair them, that is a lot less landfill, obviously. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's just well, not... At the moment, right. the way things are, Karen, um, we are one of the most highly consumptive societies in the world in Australia. Really? Uh, we yes. are. Uh, we have one of the highest landfill rate, rates of disposal to landfill. Uh, we are amongst the top in terms of carbon emissions per capita. Um, we are appalling, really. So we've got a long way to go. So... Uh, we can look at it another way and say we've got plenty of opportunity for improvement, and that's the way I prefer to say it. Um, the challenge is in a way that we are still a early settler 
you know, explorer mentality of vast open spaces, unbounded opportunity, don't have to worry about the consequences. If we were in some countries in Europe where space is a premium and they value the land because that's where the generations they have grown up and lived, they would know that that's all they is and what they have to look for. And we're in a sort of a strange situation in the where we are in the 21st century in Australia where we are still living like we have endless amounts of arable land and mm. endless amounts of nutrients to plough over that land to feed ourselves and to clothe ourselves. Yeah. And that's not true. Um, most people don't quite realise it, but... Um, our predictions are that we are going to have peak phosphorus by 2030. Now, phosphorus is a fundamental building block to our agricultural system. It's what fueled what we call the Green Revolution, which enabled us to feed millions more people, billions more people. So without phosphorus, our mind as a resource, we are in deep trouble, and particularly in Australia. So we have to turn around our organic systems, our water, water recovery systems in order to capture the nutrient that we currently dispose of to soil or to the ocean in order to turn that around in order that we can start to put that onto agricultural land. So that's a massive shift that we need to make on that front. We need to stop sending all our organic material to landfill. We're currently um, incredibly profligate in how much quality material we put. Um, not only do we consume as food, but what we don't consume, we then throw into our rubbish bins. And my husband's just about to wheel a rubbish bin outside the door. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> <on him. laughs> um, but um, we send an inordinate amount of our quality organic material to landfill where it rots away as methane, which contributes to our greenhouse gas emissions. So um, I'm a fervent believer that we can and must make the change and that we'll do so by moving to an all-electric future and to a renewable future. And we will stop doing such ridiculous things as sending our nutritious organic material to landfill where it rots when in actual fact that should be ploughed ploughed back into, back into the soil. So, Absolutely. So what does it take to, to get to that going? We need to change the pricing of things at landfill. We need to make it easy for people to do the right thing and make it hard for people to do the wrong thing. Uh, part of that is, um, for example, making it compulsory for everyone in food, cafes, food um, preparation areas, um, farmland and so forth and in our homes for us to put that into the right bin rather than the landfill bin. They've done it in France, they've done it in Belgium, they've done it in um, the Netherlands, they've done it in Germany. It's not impossible. Um, and a phenomenal number of Australians already compost, but it needs now to be not just in the home, but yep. in the workplace, in where our food is prepared. I look at my father, <laughs> and he was always a mad composter for his own garden. And going back just, you know, in the 60s, our sink had a newspaper in it, which all our rubbish was wrapped up if it wasn't compost, it was then thrown in the bin in newspaper, not in plastic glad bags. So, you know, there are some things that you think, well, maybe we can go back to those, but it's, yeah. Back to the future. 
and back, back to the well that'd be a good name for a movie wouldn't it <laughs> it's a really it sounds so mind you know it sounds like it's difficult to do but i like putting it in place once it's in place it's not so hard is it well, i think that covid has shown us how easily people can change mm. um, and readily they can change when they see that it is for their benefit and for a societal common good. So I, I'm a, a believer in um, uh, people's willingness to change. What we need sometimes is uh, political courage to do so and to ensure that we have the right people on side to make it happen. So having um, negative media commentary about any innovation doesn't help. And if I were in a position, I would negotiate and get uh, a number of those um, key influencers to change their position by seeing the importance of the shift. Um, Mm. It's often seen as too hard. It's not. It's seen as too expensive. It's far better than the alternative. Um, and I really do believe that people have a genuine desire for a better outcome and a better society for themselves and their children, so that they would have that change if required. And I think a lot of people who are educated see the benefits of the future. I mean, I I know you look at your own children and grandchildren and you think, well, what's the world going to be like for them if we don't make the changes now? Because a lot of a lot of what's happening is our generation, the baby boomers. Unfortunately, Karen, the the future is going to be horrible. So um, just because we can't see it and only too few people can see it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There are people that are already saying that it is too late for us to prevent catastrophic climate change, that a significant number of tipping points have already been reached and breached and we haven't even turned the corner. So they give the analogy of the Titanic and that the fact that the boat was so large and so big that it needed five kilometres or more to turn the ship around. And, of course, it was left far too late for that to happen. Um, and there are people that say that we've left uh, addressing climate change to have a safe climate too late. But I think, well, that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and that doesn't mean that we mustn't do all that we can to make that happen because to not do so, the outcome will only be absolutely god-awful and, as they say, civilization will cease to exist. So if we want to, in our lifetime and in our children's lifetime, so if we want to leave a half-decent world for ourselves and our children, then we must change. To me, it's scary. I remember David Suzuki, I want to say Robert, David Suzuki in the talking about, you know, you have to do this now. And he was travelling the world, advising what's going to happen, trying. And now, you know, a lot of the things that he said, and I think it was about the types of storms that we're going to get. You know, you look at some of the storms we're getting here in Australia now that we didn't get before. All of that sort of climate change but people still deny it i know you know there are people that believe in flat earth and there are people that um, have all sorts of um, different views but this isn't about a democracy this is about how we save lives and 
our civilization and the way of life. So uh, they're entitled to their views, but that doesn't mean that should stop the rest of us from taking action. Um, there's been that much published about what we need to do, reports. There's thankfully enormous growing number of councils that have declared climate emergencies. There are um, professional associations that have declared climate emergencies. There are businesses ranging from IKEA right through to, um, I mean, an astonishing group of businesses that have said that they're going to take, you know, not just reduce their emissions, but they're going to take such actions that they will absorb through planting and so forth and initiatives all the emissions that they've ever produced since the formation of the company. I think that was Microsoft. So you have to take your hats off to that and think, well, that is outstanding leadership. We need more of that in, mm. in other countries around the world. And yeah. it's hard. You, you don't care where your electrons come from, whether they are renewable or what have you, so long as they keep your lights on. So why on earth are we making such a song and dance about it when it, we know that it really is inevitable and it must be done? So, yes, we need to keep the jobs for people, but they can transition just the same as I did or anyone else in transitioning where they work and what they do. So there's some of the, you know, what's the expression, you know, when the gold ran out, it's not like people just up stumped and moved and that's the sort of things we have to do because, yes, our country is running out of water, the storms are getting worse, the weird, the, what they're calling weird weather um, is only going to get more significant. And the weather we are seeing now is as a result of the emissions that we have released for the last 40-plus years. So if you think what we're seeing now, think what next year is going to be and how that's been accumulated over time. So having renewable power, going off gas, um, having electric transport, uh, moving across to, yes, removing uh, methane from landfills, they're all very easy things to do. We know exactly how to do all of that. And mm. Governments and businesses and communities to um, enable it to happen. You are the chair of the Churchill Trust. Tell us a bit about the Churchill Trust and the scholarship that you applied for. Yes, Karen. So I was successful in winning a Churchill scholarship back in 2017 to travel in 2018 to investigate how Europe was transitioning to a circular economy. And my focus was specifically on plastics because it was an area that I knew reasonably well and I knew it was a hot topic and perhaps one of the most significant issues that needed to be addressed. So um, I was successful in winning that Churchill Scholarship and came back just um, so enthused and inspired by gutsy leadership and what governments and businesses and associations were doing. It was just mind-bogglingly brilliant. And I learned so much from that experience. And so I've been very fortunate that this year I was asked to chair the selection panel for the Churchill Trust for Victoria that awarded me that scholarship three yep. years ago. And um, so now we're assessing applications from people who want to go and do similar to myself um, and bring expertise and knowledge back to Australia. It's going to be interesting, obviously, with COVID and how people are going to be able to travel. Um, it's 
going to be a little bit difficult, but um, hopefully, um, well, we'll see how that all transpires. So, yes, I'm an avid change maker, I guess, and, you know, to be able to see leaders emerging and how I can support them is a wonderful um, thing indeed, Karen. Is there any particular countries, and you may have mentioned them earlier, um, in Europe that really stood out as to making a big difference in the plastics? Oh, I, I think um, I would have to sing, single out um, the Netherlands for their strategic approach. They are so different in their country to us. They are a tiny country. Uh, half their land, I think, is below sea level. So they live with the reality of the impact of climate change, that as the sea level is rising relative to their land, they are in increased danger of you know, being wiped out. It's astonishing. And um, it's just integral to their culture to... Uh, adopt and be efficient with different measures. And because they don't have the vast resources that we have of mining and land that, you know, stretches forever, they are been there for a very long time, tilling the soil and so forth. They don't waste it much at all. So all their organic material goes to become compost to go onto land. Mm because they recognise the importance of maintaining good soil and feeding their population. And, in fact, they are actually a net exporter of food. They are so good at it. Mm. Uh, and, of course, because climate change has such an immediate threat that they recognise of the rising, they're damn determined to transition to renewable energy and to um, address climate change. And so both in their public sphere, in their private businesses and in their um, government, uh, it's an astonishing commitment what they're doing. They are leading the world in the way they're leading for a more circular economy, but it's brought about by circumstance. So um, they realised and passed a, uh, when we were there actually in 2018 that they would cease extraction from their gas field, which is underneath the Netherlands, not just because of climate change, but they recognise that it's causing subsidence. So their cities are, mm. you know... Coming down, yeah. Coming down. They've got earthquakes now as a result of removing so much gas from underneath their land. So their buildings mm. aren't stable. So in order to preserve their cities and towns, they're actually stopping gas extraction which is impacting all of their heating, district heating, which is impacting their large, substantial chemical and pharmaceutical industries, which rely on the gas. So it's a revolution in terms of their having to rethink what they do, what they manufacture, their society and so forth, uh, which they've had to come to grips with. How are they managing to or are they managing to influence other countries? or to take similar action? Well, because they're not a large, rich resource country like we are, they are exporting their knowledge. So they established a Netherlands 
export bureau, if you want to call it that, where they are travelling the world talking about circular economy. And they are using their businesses that have come from the Netherlands, such as Rabobank, to go into other countries to talk up how to be more sustainable. And that's part of the Netherlands business model. So they see this as part of their way forward and their competitive advantage. Helen, can you just explain circular economy? I know sure. it, it probably, it's probably just as it sounds, but to, can you put it in simple terms? Sure. Uh, so a circular economy isn't a linear one. It's one where we take materials such as mined metals and instead of throwing them away after we've used them, we circulate them back again. So if we take, for example, an aluminium can, an aluminium can can be reprocessed many times, so it can steal. So instead of throwing it to landfill after it's been used in serving us a drink, we put it back in the system again. Or indeed, in actual fact, what we do is we create a metal container that is reusable time and time again. So mm -hmm. beer kegs, for example, are a prime example of brilliant circularity because you construct and make this material and it goes round and around in the system. Yeah. We have to move to a far more efficient circular economy, not just obviously with beer kegs. <laughs> Uh, no, not just drink more beer, but in all sorts of ways. So the glass in our windows, the timber in our houses, the way we construct our buildings, um, the cars, how we reuse and re, um, repair our cars and keep them going. I saw the other day that Volkswagen is proposing a unitary sashi, that's not quite the right word, heavens to Betsy, um, upon which you put the car body. And so, oh, shazzy. Shazzy, that's it. So you, <laughs> a, a unitary sh shazzy upon which you put different car bodies. Right. So you might have a Volkswagen Beetle or you will have a four-wheel drive or you will have, you know, a larger combi van style, but it all operates on the same chassis. Mm -hmm. so the idea is that there are modular parts and reusable parts, and that's what we'll aim, we must absolutely aim to, Karen. So that's a more circular economy. Likewise, um, what we do with all our organic material, so you use it, you eat it, or you dispose of it, and it goes back onto land to grow more food, etc. So that's the ideal. The circular, yep. When have you been most out on a limb in terms of, your vision and what you've proposed? Hmm. Actually, I think I can remember back in 2017 here in Australia and I started talking to people about my Churchill Scholarship and people said, oh, that's just, you know, we were riding high. Australia was um, in the middle of a boom um, the idea of greater efficiency and moving to a more circular economy when we were relying on exports or relying on imports and we were all in this, um, uh, you know, continuous growth mode seemed really quite absurd to people. But 
if you can see the overall trend that we must, whether it's phosphate or carbon, for example, be far more efficient, um, I thought, no, the model has to change. And so that's when I started telling people that I think we needed to make change in Australia. And I've had a couple of people who are fairly senior in government who said, oh, don't be ridiculous, Helen, that's just you know, nonsense. Um, we export to Asia and China so much of our plastics, paper and metals, everything is fine. We don't have to worry about what happens with our packaging alone. Um, we don't need to worry about recycling and our car parts or anything like that, you know, um, go, go away. And um, sure enough, within uh, a few months of that, China announced that it was going to ban the import of unsorted recyclables. Oh, yes, I remember that. That's right. And pardon me, I don't know if this is, but the shit hit the fan. And I happened to be overseas doing my virtual scholarship during all of that, came back to Australia and it was like, oh, thank goodness you've gone and done that. And um, and so I was given that amazing job to work in the Victorian government, um, working there on their circular economy policy, which I think is the most um, progressive that we've seen in Australia. Um, we were able to propose some fairly significant changes. There's nothing like a, um, what's the word, you know, never waste a crisis. So the um, curbside recycling crisis presented us Victoria with a significant opportunity to rechange them, to change the model. Uh, and I was really fortunate to be there at the right time and in the right place, Karen. Um, it didn't, you know, if, if it a couple of, even a year or two earlier, um, you know, I have to thank China really because well, it, it, it really put the writing on the wall. Yeah, well, I remember all of that. You know, it amazes me, Helen. I go down to the bins and we have, you know, cardboard and we have, we have paper bin, bottles bin and rubbish and I live in a block of 28 units. Mm. It's amazing the people that don't know what's paper and what's bottles. I'm like forever, and there's a few of us forever sorting it out. And you just think, just get your crap together, guys. You talked about land. One day we're going to run out of land if we keep building these multi-storey buildings. And, and, you know, the population's growing. To me, I describe it like this. It's an upside-down pyramid, and it started with whatever, small number of people, and it's gone like this. And if you think that in the world everyone has two children or couples have two children, I don't, the nuclear fam, family, it's like what happens? We can't keep going like that. And I know that's a really hard topic to get your head around, but people grow up, want to have children, and then those kids grow up and want to have children, and it's just this, it just gets faster and faster. Where do we all go? What do we do? Do we build underground? But then you think like they're extracting the gas under the Netherlands and then the land's collapsing. Is is there a solution to that? Uh, you've raised so many good points there, Karen. And um, perhaps the first thing is to say, yes, um, in Australia we are facing uh, a double whammy and one is obviously the impacts of climate change, which is going to mean that areas that we have relied on for agriculture are going to be um, viable into the future. So uh, viable 
profitable agricultural land is diminishing, both as a consequence of climate change and also because we're putting buildings on top of it. So the best agricultural land is that around our cities. And so by building ever more housing over the top of our quality agricultural land, not over poor quality, but over good quality land where um, it's, it's destined to ever to be buried. And so um, we do have a serious problem there. And I refer back to the way in which they deal with that in Europe, which is to not extend beyond town boundaries. They preserve their, agricultural, their valuable agricultural land as much as they possibly can because they know that that's absolutely fundamental to feed themselves. They go for increased urban density. Um, a lot of those countries also don't have rapidly increasing populations. A number of them have stable or slightly declining populations. And in actual fact, if Australia didn't in, uh, have as many immigrants, our population would be declining as well. So we have, I think, pretty much zero um, population growth amongst our own people. We rely on immigrants to increase our um, population. So we do have to also tackle that particular challenge of arable land and preserving it for uh, food growing. Um, we have some of the best arable land in the world, if not uh, in Australia, for growing garlic, um, For uh, and yet we are now putting that under housing estates down here in Victoria. So you kind of... You just wonder about the sense of some of those sorts of things. So, that, it, is it all about money and what are developers doing to you know when you see, well, that's right. It's because we don't we don't value the land because we kind of look to the horizon and think that we've got endless quantities of land, which to some extent we do, but it's not necessarily the best land for growing garlic. And I look at situations of mining, and you know there was a terrible situation, and I'm not going to talk about the company either but the, the mistakes that it are made in mining and you know plowing up land and taking the stuff out you know whatever it is they're mining for just like dollars and you know this is going back to the point before about the system that we put in place so the system that we put in place here um, doesn't preserve the land so the financial incentives for development, for uh, rates, for uh, retention of um, agricultural activity on land don't provide the sufficient incentive for us to reward our farmers, for people to stay on farm. So they're the sorts of taxation and financial levers and regulatory levers that we must change in order to change the, that sort of fundamental. But as to growing population, um, yes, that is a significant problem for us if we're going to keep our climate, you know, and um, uh, keep our, you know, global temperatures below 1.5 degrees increased in, in temperature. Who's listening, Helen? I think this is where, you know, lots of conversations are really important to help people understand and change their minds and certainly having leaders in business and in industry associations coming forward to their members and saying this is not acceptable, we have to um, have higher standards. We can't wait to be broken, Karen, before we try to fix it. So 
as intelligent, sentient people who have the capacity to imagine the future, then we must take responsibility for managing it appropriately. Mm. And that's yeah. why, you know, having, you know, I was so delighted for you to interview, you know, invite me to come on to your show because the more we have these conversations and the more people think, oh, yes, that's okay, I can um, improve the draft proofing in my house, I can make my house more comfortable and affordable and uh, lower my bills at the same time and, Maybe there's someone who's listening who works in local government who will help put in place a program to make it easy for people like yourself to be able to do that. Um, maybe there will be someone who is a developer who will go, you know, damn it, I'm going to actually change the way we do things. I'm going to adopt green building standards to ensure that people in the future have this and we're going to use that as our marketing edge. Maybe there will be actually someone within the business who go damn it, that's just such a damn idea. We're going to do that ourselves because we appreciate that our employees want us to do the right thing and so we're going to do it. Hang it, we're going to take a leadership position. That's the whole point about these sorts of conversations. And by setting targets, um, so, for example, I ran a, um, a workshop recently for people and I asked them um, on the council, I said, so can you please make a pledge as to what it is you're going to do in the next month, two months, six months that you're going to do? And one guy said, heck, I'm just going to go and buy green power tomorrow. It's no brainer. I'm just going to change my provider. I'm just going to go and go ditch the coal and buy the renewables. That's the sort of thing that we can do. It's all yeah. our power. And, um, Next week I've got another workshop which I'm running online for another council, again the same, to have that conversation and just spread the word. Well, I really love what you're doing and, you know, I'm learning just by talking to you, listening to you. And But is there, is there anything else you want to talk about, your proudest achievements or the future work and engagements Perhaps my final word would be to say living life with a purpose is a magnificent thing. And to know that what you're doing is actually making a difference to the world is so important. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage any of your listeners to look at their lives and what they're planning to do for the next year and reflect on what can they do that actually is going to make the world a better place? Yeah. Not with greater consumption, not with um, uh, but actually going to make a substantive difference to their lives than those around them. And whether that's doing a course on how to live a more sustainable life, um, whether they're going to set themselves targets for reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, whether they're going to pledge that their next car or next bicycle or whatever or motorbike is going to be electric, um, let's, you know, live like we love this planet and do what we can to um, make it happen. So I'm very fortunate in my life I've pivoted to do that and I have never looked back, Karen. Um, it keeps me going every day and um, I'm always thrilled to share and enthuse and um, support and inspire other people to do the same. Perhaps you could share some information with me, just some dot points on what people can do, and I can put that out through my social media. 
and um, I can even put it on my website because I think there are people trying to make a difference and I know many people where I live that are trying to make a difference and are very conscious of making a difference. And they ride around on old bikes that are recycled and I, I do hang out with a community of people that are very considerate of the environment and the ocean, particularly the ocean. But, yeah, um, I'd love to share some, some good information. So if you've got 10 dot points, we'll just, you know, um, I'd love to share those with you, with, the, with my listeners and, yeah. As I say, we, we, particularly for those of us that are in work, we can do it at home and we can do it in our workplace. We can encourage our work colleagues. We can encourage um, people who are our customers. We can encourage people who are our suppliers back the change. Uh, we are all agents of change. It's a question of what change do we want to create, whether it's a more sustainable one or one that's less sustainable. So um, it's just a question of changing our mindset and going, every day or in every way or every week or, you know, I'm going to set targets for... You now, some people have targets about how much they're going to save in their budget, you know. Some people say, well, you know, my um, plan for next year is to travel to X. Why not have a plan about how to be more sustainable alongside that? So that people say, next year I'm going to ensure that by this time next year... I've um, gone and got myself an electric motorbike. Maybe what we can do is actually put out a little goal-setting question and a page, download the page and say, what are you going to do hmm? next year to make your living, your home, um, a more envir environmentally friendly, you know, place? What make your life more, you know, make what you're doing adding to our sustainability. Yeah. Helen, honestly, congratulations on all you do. I've absolutely loved talking to you today. It's, it's so good. And I know that this is going to really appeal to people to hear what you have to say and keep on making a difference. If we can ever do anything to help you, let us know if you want to come on here again and have another chat when you've something great's going on. Please just come on and have a chat. I've got a good, I've got a couple of projects in the pipeline, so that would be good actually. Well, when those projects are ready, you know how to find me. Yes, I love it. One of the wonderful things about life is you mm. you can pivot as many times as you want, and I think that's awesome. And hopefully a few people start to pivot and help people like yourself with our climate change issues and, and sustainability and a circular economy. So, Helen, thank you so much again. And, All right. uh, yeah, I'd love chatting to you. Goodbye and thank you very much for your time, Karen, and your listeners. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, 
Aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all I'm to find. It's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains high. Swim across oceans wide. Let your heart be alive. 